And as we continue our look at the book of Romans, I would spend a short while this morning looking at verses 23 through 25 in the fourth chapter of Romans with you this evening. Well, let's begin reading at verse 16 so that we recall the context, and if you will, let's bow in prayer before reading. Our Father, we are humbled that we have within our hands and in our laps the inerrant Word of God that is so thoroughly and completely given to us out of your grace and mercy. We know that as we hold this Word that we find Christ on every page, and we certainly see Him here. And we ask that even as these questions that have been raised by Muslims that we have heard tonight are answered by David, that we would see even within this text answers to those questions, that we might be deeply grateful that you have not left us in our sins and that we also may be mission-minded to take this good news of Jesus, the justifier of sinners, to the needy world in which we find ourselves by your providence. And we pray for the advance of your kingdom and the spread of the good news of Christ and that many, many, many would come to know the Lord Jesus through David's ministry and through the ministry of this congregation. For we ask it in the name of Christ, again humbling ourselves before this word, asking that we would submit ourselves to its teaching in Jesus' name. Amen. Romans, the fourth chapter, beginning to read at verse 16. This is the word of God. That is why it depends on faith in order that the promise may rest on grace and be guaranteed to all his offspring, not only to the adherent of the law, but also to the one who shares the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you the father of many nations in the presence of the God in whom he believed, who gives life to the dead and calls into existence the things that do not exist. In hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations, as he had been told, so shall your offspring be. He did not weaken in faith when he considered his own body, which was as good as dead since he was about a hundred years old, or when he considered the barrenness of Sarah's womb. No distrust made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. But the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Let's read again beginning at verse 23. Our focus tonight, but the words it was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now, if you've been following what the Apostle Paul has been teaching us as we have unfolded these passages, especially in Romans 3 and Romans 4, we have this great theme of how we are declared acceptable to God. 
We are justified, declared, accepted, not by anything we do, no work that we contribute. We have no merit of our own, but only through the merit of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is justification by grace, through faith, in the work of Christ alone. And now we come for a few moments this evening to these monumental verses that speak of Christ having been delivered and raised by the Father for our justification. The Apostle Paul would have us to know, and again this is the great theme of chapter 4, that there has never been any other way of acceptance with God. And so he points to Abraham. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he pointed to David. Blessed is the man, said David, against whom the Lord will not count his sin. So that Abraham was justified by grace, looking ahead to the cross. David was justified by grace through faith, looking ahead to the cross. In the same way in which you and I are accepted by God, justified by grace through faith, as we look back to what Jesus did on the cross for us. But as we come to these verses tonight, the first thing that I want you to see is that to trust in Christ involves believing on the Father also. To trust in Christ involves believing in the Father also. Notice how it's put in verses 24 and 25. But for ours also it will be counted to us who believe in Him, that is the Father, who raised Him from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up, that is to say, by the Father for our trespasses, and raised, that is, by the Father for our justification. Now the wondrous thing about this is that it implies something that is so essential for, for us to understand and that we wish our Muslim friends understood as well. And that is that it implies the Trinitarian plan of God. God is not monad. Uh, there are three persons in the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and these three are one God, the same in substance, equal in power and in glory. God is three persons in the unity of His Godhead. And what we see here is the Son dying and the Son being raised, but the Son dying because He was delivered by His Father, and the Son raised because He was raised by His Father's power. And of course, as we move along in Romans, especially in the 8th chapter, how the Holy Spirit relates to all of this is underscored and emphasized by Paul the Apostle. So we have this great Trinitarian plan that is revealed to us in the Scriptures in which we find that the Father loved His people from before the foundations of this world and determined to deliver up His Son for us all. The Son willingly came and suffered and bled and died on behalf of His people and He was raised from the dead and the Holy Spirit applies that accomplishment of Jesus Christ to the hearts and lives of sinners like you and like me. What is implied here then is the Trinitarian plan of God. And that teaches us something else, as Martin Lloyd-Jones noted. It teaches us that there is a greater question than the question, how am I saved? Now you might say, Pastor, what is a greater question than the question, how am I saved? Well, the greater question is this. How is God glorified? For your salvation was God's way of bringing glory to His grace, glory to His mercy, demonstrating the glory of His character, the wonder of who He is. 
that this infinite, eternal, unchangeable God chose to glorify himself in the salvation of us sinners. That indeed is because this great triune God chose a people, sent his son who died for his people, who rose again, and the Spirit applies this to our hearts. All for the praise of his glorious grace, as we read in Ephesians chapter 1. But as we see in these verses this emphasis on the triune nature of God and this Trinitarian plan that is worked out for the salvation of God's people, it also corrects a false view that is sometimes wrongly ascribed to us who believe in the substitutionary atonement of Jesus. It corrects the false view that Christ somehow came in order to make the Father to be loving, that He came in order to make the Father to be gracious to us. And from time to time I hear not solid, well-taught biblical folk, but I do hear people say, you Christians believe that the Son came in order to make the Father to be gracious. That somehow His death on the cross was twisting the Father's arm behind His back in order to make Him show love and make Him gracious. But that indeed is not the case. Do not overlook that the fount of your salvation is the Father in His love. The Father who loved you from before the foundation of the world determined to deliver up His sons, His Son, for your offenses, determined to raise Him for your justification. That The coming of the Son does not in any way force the Father to love Him. The Son comes because the Father loves us, His people. In the fifth chapter we read, For while we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly, but God shows His love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The Father's love is demonstrated in the sacrifice of His Son. But I think these verses imply something else. That trusting in Christ means also to trust the Father who delivered and raised His Son. And this is news, folks. The gospel of Jesus Christ is news. Something that actually happened in time and in space and in history. We do not preach a philosophy. We do not proclaim an ethical system. We proclaim good news. That Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. There was a Pew Fund study just a few years ago. And among the questions asked in that Pew-funded study was this question. Can many religions lead to eternal life? And 70% of the national answer was yes. Many religions can lead to eternal life. But the great surprise was that 57% of the evangelicals answered the question yes. That other religions can lead to eternal life life. I am certain, I am absolutely certain that were that study propounded today, the percentage of evangelicals answering that question would be higher than it was a few years ago. But you see, what is special about this text is that it is an announcement of news The righteousness of Christ will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses 
and raised for our justification. The good news is that a miracle has taken place. That God the Son actually came into this world and assumed human nature in order that in His finite suffering, His infinite nature might give to His finite suffering infinite value so that your sin, your infinite sin against the infinite God could be pardoned and forgiven once and for all. And if you do not believe in this supernaturalism, I think the answer of J. Gresham Machen is certainly right. The man who is under conviction of sin can accept the supernatural, for he knows that there is an adequate occasion for the entrance into the course of the world of the supernatural. And if you do not yet understand yourself to be a sinner in light of the the perfection of the law of God that demands perfect, personal, perpetual obedience, if you do not understand that you are under the wrath of God by nature, then you will not see the need of a Savior who came into the world to deliver sinners on the cross or who rose from the dead. But if ever you see yourself in light of the law of God and in light of God's holiness and recognize yourself to be a sinner and acknowledge yourself before God to be a sinner, then you will cry out with all of your heart, Lord, I believe, because only a Savior sent from heaven could redeem me from my awful sins, and only a Savior raised from the dead could raise my dead soul to life. And so to sum up this point, it is the Father who shows mercy through His Son. As one of the old preachers said, it needs the whole Trinity to make a whole Christian. And the whole Trinity cooperating in a divine unity must be praised and adored for our salvation. But let's move on in the text a step farther. Second thing is this. What is the content of justifying faith? If indeed we believe in Christ, and in believing Christ we also believe the Father who delivered Him and raised Him, then the natural thing for us to ask is, what is the content of that faith? And the answer is found in a threefold answer. First of all, the content of that faith is belief in Christ's Lordship. For again we read in verse 24, It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead Jesus, our Lord. And that's no throwaway for the Apostle Paul. It's essential. Belief in Christ's Lordship trusting your life, believing in Christ who is Lord of the dead and of the living. You see, for the Apostle Paul to use the word kurios, Lord, is the equivalent of Yahweh, Jehovah. He is affirming the deity of Christ. And he is saying to us that only God in the flesh could save us from our sins. That this one who was delivered and was raised again was actually the second person of the Trinity. Now, Paul's are the earliest New Testament writings, and I find this to be very fascinating. The insight into who Jesus was, was believed right from the beginning. Romans written in the 50s. It didn't take time to develop as myths take time to develop, but was believed right from the start. Why? Why was it believed right from the start that Jesus was Lord, that He was God incarnate, And the answer can only be because the disciples had walked with him and had seen him, heard his teaching, saw his miracles. They saw him as he hung upon a cross, 
but they also met with him after he had been raised from the dead. And this could only be God himself in the flesh. Do not overlook the Father, but do not overlook the Son in whom you were called to put your trust, who is declared to be the Lord. Now, people of God, as your trust is in Christ as Lord, we also should live as if we trust Christ as Lord. And on Monday when we leave this place, it should have profound impact upon your life to remember the minister proclaimed the Lordship of Christ, not over some of life, but over all of life, not over some of your soul, but all of your soul, not over some of your thoughts, but all of your thoughts, not over some of our actions, but all of our actions. We believe in Christ as Lord. But then... The next portion of the answer to the question, what is the content of justifying faith, is that Christ was delivered for our offenses. Look at verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses or our offenses. Now, what does this mean? It means that he was delivered to the punishment of our sins, our punishment that our sins deserved. That our offenses, our breach of God's holy law, our offenses, our trespasses were imputed to him as he suffered and bled and died in our place. And this, of course, stresses once again the father's role. The son pays the penalty of the broken law. He bears the wrath of God in our place. And there was no other way of salvation. There was no other good enough to pay the price of sin. He only could unlock the gate of heaven and let us in. And so justifying faith is a faith that believes that this Jesus was delivered for our offenses. But it doesn't stop there. We believe in Jesus the Lord who was delivered by the Father for our awful trespasses against his law. But also we believe in this Jesus who was raised for our justification. As we see it again in verse 25, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Now earlier in the verses that have preceded these, you will remember that Abraham was called to believe something stupendous. He was called to believe that though his body was as good as dead... And Sarah also was near 100 years old, that God would fulfill the promise of giving to them the promised seed. And through that seed, of course, the Messiah would come. And in believing that promise, Abraham was believing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. That is to say, in entrusting his soul to Christ, the righteousness of Christ was imputed to him. But now we are called to believe something staggering as well. And faith always seems to come to this point as you read it in the scriptures. Faith believes that God can raise the dead. We saw it this morning as we looked at the healing of the leper. Only God can heal the leper. And in the Jewish mind, to heal a leper was the equivalent of raising the dead. Faith always believes. Always believes that God can fulfill his promise and raise the dead. And so the justified person looks to Christ who is Lord, who died for our offenses, 
who was raised from the dead and looks to Christ alone, not to any work that we could contribute, for we have none, not to any merit that we could contribute, for we have no merit. What is justifying faith? Justifying faith is believing this word of the cross. Justifying faith is believing this word of resurrection. But you know, it does you no good to believe that, yes, it is true, Abraham looked to the cross and he was justified, accepted, received as righteous. David also looked to the cross and he believed, and many around me have also believed and they are justified. But it does you no good to believe that if you do not believe that he was delivered for your offenses and he was raised for your justification. And I wonder if there is someone here now and you have not yet believed in Jesus Christ, the Lord, who was delivered for offenders like us who broke his law. And you have not yet believed in Christ who has been raised from the dead. I call upon you, put your trust in Jesus. Come to him as Lord. Believe that he died for sinners. Believe that he was raised by the Father from the dead. And the moment that you put your trust in the risen Lord... Your sins are pardoned and you are accepted as righteous in God's sight. It's nothing you do. It's altogether the work that he accomplished. And so we don't look at ourselves at all. We look away from ourselves to Christ. The only thing we do in looking to ourselves is to say, He died for my offenses and my trespasses. Thank God. But then we need to see a third thing. We need to ask the question, why was the resurrection of Jesus necessary for my justification? After all, we are used to thinking of Christ dying for our justification, but here it says he was raised for our justification, for our acceptance with God. Now this is always a fruitful question. In any case, to ask what does Jesus' resurrection mean for us? Just think about it for a moment. The resurrection of Jesus means that what Jesus said about himself was true. That he claimed to be the Messiah and his resurrection demonstrated that when he said that he would go to the cross and be raised on the third day, that it was true. The resurrection means that his death for sinners is effective. That our faith is not futile. That on that Sunday morning, God moved the gravestone aside and sent life into his body and proclaimed to the world that Jesus' death was effective. That in the words of E.J. Bicknell, the resurrection was God's public attestation of the claims of the crucified, the amen of the Father, to the it is finished of the Son. It means that his death was effective The old divines used to use the words, used to speak of the finished work of Christ. And we need to use those words again. It means that death has been destroyed in principle. So we read in Acts 2.24, it was impossible for death to keep hold on him. It means that we can know God as Father, for we now have access through the risen Lord who has carried our flesh into heaven And he sits and stands and ministers for us as our great high priest. And it means that Jesus is coming again. And that our resurrection has already in principle begun. Because he is the first fruits of those who sleep. 
It means that our witness to Jesus until he returns is not in vain. No matter where we minister or to whom we minister. Because Paul ends his great resurrection chapter saying, In the Lord your labor is not in vain. It is always a fruitful question to ask, What does Jesus' resurrection mean for us? But, very specifically in this text... Why was the resurrection necessary for my justification? What is the linkage between justification and resurrection that Paul would have us understand? Well, if you will, turn in your Bibles to 1 Timothy 3.16, and let me remind you of a, a verse that we have looked at in our study of the pastoral epistles. In 1 Timothy 3.16, the Apostle says, Great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the Spirit, seen by angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. Now look at it again. He was manifested in the flesh. That's his incarnation. That's his going to the cross. That's his atonement. Vindicated by the Spirit is his resurrection. Through the Spirit he was raised. And he was seen afterward by angels. Now notice this word that is applied to his resurrection. Vindicated by the Spirit. That word vindicate is the word justify. What the Apostle Paul is saying to us in that passage is, Jesus Christ did not remain under the power of our imputed guilt, but that his resurrection was his justification. It was his vindication. In the words of John Murray, the mediation of Christ could not be operative if he were still under the power of death. What's Paul's point when he says to us, that he was raised for our justification. The point is this, that Christ took our condemnation and death, but he did not remain under our condemnation and death. The Father is completely satisfied with his Son's removal of wrath for sin. Jesus' resurrection assures us that his atoning death has been accepted. And if the Father is completely satisfied with what Jesus did on the cross when he shed his blood and removed the Father's wrath, then the declaration, no condemnation can be placed upon all who believe in Jesus. And Jesus can be just and the justifier of those who trust in him. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Is Mr. Spurgeon, that, uh, that uh, favorite uh, Baptist Presbyterian of mine, puts it. The dying Christ has purchased for us our justification, but the risen Christ will see that we get it. As he puts, as he puts it further, Jesus Christ was put in the prison of the grave as a hostage for us. He had paid our debt, but he must wait in the grave Till the certificate that the death was paid was registered in the court of heaven. That being done for three days and nights, down flew the bright messenger from heaven, bearing the writ and warrant 
that the hostage must go free, for the debt was paid, and the whole liability was discharged. Then the stone was rolled away, and when the angel had rolled it away, what did he do? He went and sat down upon it. He seemed to say, now death and hell, roll the stone back if you can. But they could not. The keepers fled far away. And Jesus Christ himself came out to newness of life. And now both the sinner and his substitute are cleared. The captive and the hostage are both set free. He that owed the debt is cleared by his substitute. And the substitute himself is cleared, for he has paid all that infinite justice could demand, and he has received a clean bill of deliverance. Thus he comes forth out of the durance vile, imprisonment vile, raised from the dead by his Father's hand. The resurrection, people of God, the resurrection of Jesus from the dead is your justification. Uh, This is vitally important. And I will tell you that uh, years ago, I I would never have dreamt that in my lifetime there would be such compromises of the biblical and Protestant doctrine of justification as we see in many, many places today. I would never have dreamt it. But it's so important that you get this right. So important that you understand that the only way of acceptance with God, the only way of acceptance with God is through what Christ did when he bore the wrath of God, was delivered for our transgressions and trespasses, and when he was raised by his Father from the dead. Now we give out to visitors that little book, All of Grace by Mr. Spurgeon. And he tells of an artist and a beggar. Uh, You know, we all want to touch ourselves up and make ourselves something that we're not. But what does the apostle say in chapter 5, verse 6? Christ died for the ungodly. Not for the godly. The righteous need not a physician. The whole need not a physician. It's the sick that need a physician. He died for ungodly me. For ungodly sinners, don't touch yourself up because he justifies the ungodly. And so said Mr. Spurgeon, this great artist wanted to capture the likeness of certain characters in his town. And he came across a a, a crossing sweeper, unkempt, ragged, filthy, matted hair. And he said, I'll pay you well if you come down to my studio and let me take your likeness. He came round and when he came to the artist's studio... He had washed his face, combed his hair, and he had donned respectable clothing. He had been invited as a beggar. He was to be painted as a beggar. He was not invited in any other way. And when he came all all cleaned up of his own, the artist sent him away. And even so, the gospel The gospel will receive you into its halls if you come as a sinner and in no other way. No other way. God justifies the ungodly. It meets you where you are. And the moment the sinner believes in the risen Christ, the righteousness of Christ is imputed to his account. 
And the sinner is received by God in Christ's perfect record so that when God looks upon the believer in his court of law, he sees the perfection of his own son. So come. Come. Come disheveled. Come unwashed. Come as you are. Come ungodly, just as I am, without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me, but that thou bidst me come to thee. O Lamb of God, I come. And could it be on a Sunday evening as we gather here that there are those who have not yet come? You have not yet put your trust in Jesus, delivered for our transgressions, raised up for our justification. Come, 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 and welcome to Jesus Christ. And God's people said, Amen.